If you would, turn with me to John 3.16, and then we're going to pray and get started. It reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let us pray. The Heavenly Father, we first thank you for speaking to us through your word. We thank you for revealing your heart to us, and we thank you that not only when you revealed our nature to us as a fallen people, you've given us hope, all found in your word. We pray that after this sermon, we would never separate your love from sending your son to die. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Our soul say amen. Is there a verse anywhere in the Bible more well-known than this one? How plainly it states that eternal life comes not because of anything we do. Eternal life comes as a free gift because of God's love when we believe what he said. Luke wrote for Theophilus. Matthew and Mark wrote for Jewish audiences. And John, he wrote so that the world may believe. Jesus' disciple John is described in the Bible as the one whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom leaned against Jesus' chest at supper. Living at the end of 50 years of church history, knowing that the gospel had saturated the entire Mediterranean world, John targeted unbelievers. He illuminates and expounds on faith, not in a modern-day, radical, prosperity-esque faith, but in a faith that points to, in a faith in a way that points to life in Christ Jesus solely. John says his purpose for writing this gospel is so, and I quote from John 20, 31, that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That purpose is consistent throughout this book and is wrapped up in this verse we are delighting in today. Now, what I like about this verse is that it provides us a reason why we have this hope found in Christ. It gives a motive for why God would give us this opportunity in the first place. So what exactly is mentioned as the reason in John 3.16? For God so loved the world. Today, I want to make it that every time you hear this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, you hear, for God so loved me, that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ. I believe in him and I have eternal life. Now, get this, not in a selfish way, but in a saving way. Essentially, every time you hear the gospel message or speak the gospel message, you walk away feeling like you've either just entered into a relationship or are reminded that you are in a relationship and that you are loved by the God of the universe in the the most unexplainable and unimaginable way. Traditionally, throughout the history of mankind, gifts have been given as an expression of love and peace. Before the advancement of civilization, it was an unusually shaped rock bark from a tree or tooth from a mammal, from an animal. During the Egyptian era, gifts were mostly known for being given to pharaohs. 
In Roman times, good luck charms. We are social creatures who enjoy the company of others and we express our feelings through gift giving. Whether an expression of true love, appreciation for a job well done, or just to show gratitude to a friend. Giving gifts is ingrained in our DNA. My biological father gave me a gift once. The only gift he ever gave me in my entire 25 years of living. The jacked up part about this gift is that it wasn't from him. I showed up to his house with my friend on my 10th birthday and his wife answered the door. She invited us in, reached down in her pocket and pulled me out a $20 bill. Now at the time, at the age of 10, that was like being given access to an entire candy store. It wasn't until I was preparing this sermon that I, and it literally wasn't until I was preparing this sermon that I realized that that was an, a horrible expression of love through a gift. My father was upstairs the entire time. He did not come down, not even once. She smiled. I fake smiled. She gave me a hug, and my friend and I left. Now, God is not like that. For God so loved us so much that Jesus comes down as 100% God and 100% man, personally pays our spiritual debt for the rest of our lives, and says, one day I'm coming back to take you with me where we will feast with one another for eternity. Forget a birthday. What a great day it is to be reborn. Now, let me take a couple of minutes and give you some context for what's going on in this passage. In John chapter 3, we see the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ, having a discussion with a member of the Jewish ruling council whose name was Nicodemus. Nicodemus was proof that religious training without spiritual insight is useless. After being one of many witnesses of the miracles performed, he opened himself up to the possibility that Jesus really was a teacher from God. The rich, well-educated council member and theologian approaches a carpenter from Galilee and calls him rabbi. After much discussion of the kingdom of God and how man must be reborn, we see these words in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Some of the most profound theologians speculate, but no one knows for certain if Jesus or John said these words. But one thing that stays consistent in every speculation is that the application remains the same. They are the revelation of the nature of God and a pillar of love for God and our pillar of love for God and man. I want to bring to your attention at least three gifts in this one verse alone, from the heart of God to the hearts of mankind. The fact that God loves the world is a gift. That's number one. For God so loved the world. God's love to the world is a gift in itself. God is self-sufficient, holy by, all by himself, self-sustaining, does not need anybody, yet he chose to love us. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. The intimacy of the knowledge and experiencing of God's love is given to all who believe in him. God's gift of love cannot be inherited or earned. We see the word agapeo for the first time in John's writings. This word is used to describe God's love for the world. It translates into love or beloved. 
It means to welcome or to entertain, to be fond of or to love dearly. Seeing how this love is not inherited or obtained from God, we conclude that it is unconditional. It was his love for the world that caused him to send his son into the world in the first place. Let me pose this thought. If we think God's only purpose for sending Jesus into the world was solely to pay our debt, it lacks motive. And it's a a bit selfish on our behalf. Why would an independent God, needing no one, send his son, whom he loves in the world, to save it from a wrath they deserve? Let me put it this way. How would you feel if you were in a relationship with someone and their actions showed that all they wanted was for you to take care of their dirty laundry? Showing up to your doorstep with tons and tons of dirty laundry, time and time again. Showing up to dates with tons of dirty laundry, time and time again. The good news is not that, it's not just that Jesus paid for our sins, but that by doing so, he mended our relationship with the Father. Through his life, his death, and his resurrection, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is what has Muslims so mind-boggled. So I was parking my car when I had a car (laughs) and noticed on the car in front of me a bumper sticker. This bumper sticker read, worship the creator, not the creation. So I'm like, yeah, yes sir, that's right. In my mind, I started thinking about a fallen world and how we worship ourselves and our land, our money, cars, jobs, you name it, our children, our legacy. I'm thinking of everything. To make a short story long, I get back home and look for the bumper sticker online, and I found it. I'm like, yes. I said it just like that. (laughs) And as I'm doing my research, I found that this was actually a very popular slogan used by Muslims. And, and, And to make it even more interesting, it is inspired by Romans 1.25. That reads, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Jesus' flesh was created, but he has no beginning. 100% God and 100% man, we do in fact worship the creator. The only way to have a relationship with the father is to have a relationship with the son, his gift, and that gift is Jesus Christ. God loves the world. Here's God's love for the world. And underneath it, you have those who believe who are not condemned and those who do not believe who are already condemned. If you don't believe, God still loves you, but there's just no possible way for him to be. Get this. If you don't believe God, if you don't believe God still loves you, but there's just no possible way for you to be in a relationship with him outside you believing that he, in fact, provided a way for you to be in a relationship with him through his son whose name is Jesus, because then he would cease being holy. This brings me to the second gift to, to us found in John 3.16. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a gift to mankind given as an expression of God's love that he gave his only son. Notice that the cross said, notice that the cross is not said to show us the love of the son in this particular passage but that of the Father. The atonement proceeds from the loving heart of God the Father. The gospel isn't merely that God loves us. You're a sinner, but God loves you. Believe that? Oh, okay, you believe that? Cool, you're a Christian. No, it it doesn't work like that. 
God's love is shown to us through his gift on the cross. Christ's death and resurrection is inseparable from God's love for mankind. Some translations of John 3.16 say, For this is how God loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Saving faith is not only believing that Christ died for the world, but saving faith is believing that he died for you individually and that you needed him to. Normally in a problematic relationship, we hear from the wrongdoer, forgive me, I am sorry, don't you believe me? But from God, the one who is wrong, we see him coming to ungrateful mankind saying, I forgive you, do you believe me? Who in a problematic relationship brings a gift to the one who is at fault and says, let's make it work? Here's the answer, God. God seeing our stewardship this entire time, knowing we don't deserve to be with him, God knowing that apart from him is eternal death and that a relationship with him is the epitome of eternal life, still gave us Jesus. Gave us the Savior who wrongfully died on the cross in our rightful place. Gave us the gift of Jesus' perfect righteousness and like, the and like the resurrected Savior, the promise of regeneration. He generously freed us from our slavery to sin and graced undeserving mankind with the gift of being reunited with his creator. How great is our God? Jesus told Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The discussion was intended to clarify who the people of God were. This understanding of the people of God was foretold in Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into, into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Nicodemus, according to Jesus's words, should not be surprised to hear of this. He was a Pharisee. Pharisees knew the Old Testament. Yet he did not understand that entrance into God's kingdom was not limited to the old people of God. Physical birth or being an Israelite is no longer a requirement. God sent his son to die for the sins of, the entire cre of his entire creation, and the only requirement is faith. This was Jesus' teaching of the kingdom. Which brings me to my last point. Eternal life is a gift given to all who believe. The scripture says that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The gospel begins with God's love generates through the cross and the empty tomb and results in eternal life for those who believe, said by Kenneth E. Gangel. But if we view this gospel message as merely a benefit, then we've missed the point. For Nicodemus, the miracles Jesus performed affirmed his teaching. Nicodemus is believing because of the signs at this stage as an example of the type of believing that is insufficient. Jesus realized that the signs he performed were just an indicator of the message he preached. 
Giving hearing to the deaf was symbolic for that he gives, to, that he gives the hearing of God's truths to unbelievers. Giving sight to the blind was symbolic for the sight he gives, he gives those who, who, who are blinded to the truths of God. Giving mobility to the, lame, to the lame was symbolic for the strength he gives the new convert to walk out his faith. Sound to the mute like he gives to the once heathen who now boldly speaks and proclaims the message. And, re, and the removal of leprosy like he does for the believer who was once stained with sin. The signs are not the destination. Nicodemus represents a lot of misinformed seekers. God's purpose isn't merely to make man believe his words. His purpose is to restore his creation into an intimate relationship with his creator, with its creator. And that is done when we believe. That's why believing is so emphasized so much in God's word. I want you to understand that Belief is, the only, is only the key to experiencing the bigger picture. Don't stop at just believing the information. We already have too many, I believe, Christians. Enough, I'm Christians. What I'm not saying is that in order to be saved, you have to do something else. Salvation is not obtained through works. We are saved by grace, and that grace is applied through faith. What I'm saying is this. Just as a relationship with God without faith is not possible, faith without a relationship with God isn't possible either. God says in Isaiah 54, 4 through 8, do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. In Hosea 2.19, God says, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. Betroth means enter into formal agreement to marry. When I was in middle school, I called myself having a girlfriend at least two times. I was a bad boy. In both relationships... We didn't know anything about a relationship. But I will say this. When we didn't speak in lunch or during recess, make eye contact or have conversations where we ask questions and get to know each other, what's your favorite toy? What's your favorite candy shop? Do nice things like give her my extra juice box at lunch. After weeks had gone by, it wasn't that we knew the relationship was over. It was at that point that we knew it had never begun. And guess what? It snowballed from two middle schoolers having a misconception about each other and how they operated. We think of Jesus as the nerd in high school wanting the attention of the girl. But because he doesn't offer what the flashy, flesh-gratifying, here-and-now temporary jock has to offer, he's rejected and overlooked. Only called on or used when she has a problem on life's homework. But in the future, Jesus comes back at the reunion and every eye sees him for what he's worth. 
when all his glory and successes are visibly seen and he walks across the room and receives his bride, showing her off, saying, look at her, she's mine. Making her look oh so beautiful and making the world, I mean the girl who rejected him wish they would have accepted him. But then it will be too late. Jesus is the epitome of God's love. He is the embodiment of God's love to mankind. When we read, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, essentially we are reading, for God so loved the world that he gave his love, that whoever believes in his love shall not perish but have everlasting life. When you get a gift, right, first thing you do is give your reaction. Oh, well, I don't know, whatever, whatever your re reaction is. And then you put it on the shelf. No. You cherish it. You hold it. It's dear. You spend time with it, etc. Especially if it's from someone you say you love. If, in fact, you really love and appreciate them. Bound in chains to sin, we weren't able to appreciate the gift. But because God broke those chains through his gift, Christ Jesus, we are now free to appreciate the gift and the gift giver. But we are horrible stewards of gifts. If you're not a Christian, God gave you, like the rest of us, the gift of life. To worship him and to enjoy his creation. Yet we spend majority of our lives focusing and worshiping ourselves and misusing his creation. Some of us were given the, uh, the gift of sight and hearing. Yet we view what God hates and delight in Satan's lies. God has given us this temple. Yet we smoke and get drunk and let others misuse his sanctuary. God has given us family and friends whom we rarely call or, or love <clears throat> or as Christians evangelize to. As believers, we are given this opportunity that no one else has to be in a relationship with the Father. And yet we don't spend time with him as much as we should. We don't communicate with him as often as commanded. And when we do, the majority of time we're saying, here's dirty laundry, or God, please fix this. I think I broke it. Tons of autobiographies and what we call Bibles, yet we don't, know, we don't get to know much about him as we should. And all along, his gifts of mercies are new every morning. Like Hosea is to Goma, he is the faithful husband, forever married to the backslider. Gifts are from the heart, but the father's gift was his heart. If somebody came to you with their heart wrapped in a nice little box with a nice little bow tied around it, I don't care how nice the presentation and the thought is, if it were possible, it would be gross. And that's just an understatement. But essentially, we were heartless. And God knew that our only hope at life was in himself. Therefore, he sent us Jesus to be our righteousness and die so that we wouldn't. Praise God, the heart is alive and still beating. Jesus is the heart of God. Let us pray. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, I uh, just want to say uh, thank you for allowing me to get through this. I pray, Lord God, for the hearts and minds that heard it. I pray that uh, uh, you would open the hearts of unbelievers, Lord God, to your word. I pray that seeds were planted, some were watered, Lord God. But I pray ultimately that you give the increase, Lord God. You said that your word would not come back to you void, Lord God. And I'm praying that it do what it was set out to do. For it is in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.